Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. I think it's just costly on a lot of fronts to not take care of your mental health, but I think there's a lot that both individual journalists can do and the industry can do to really address that. It used to be that when things got difficult, journalists were told to suck it up or have a drink to ease the stress of working around the clock on difficult stories. But many newsrooms are finally recognizing that there's a mental health crisis in our industry. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Anyone who's listened to our podcast over the last few years may have noticed that we have an affinity for talking to journalists from Western New York and Canada. One of our producers, Amber Healy, lives in Buffalo. That's also where my wife is from, coincidentally. So that explains some of it. But today's guest is someone I became aware of through a Twitter post about a month ago about mental health. Camelot Todd is the mental health reporter for Spectrum News One Buffalo through Report for America. She's been covering mental health during the pandemic. Camelot, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No, I, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, mental health is something that I, that I love talking about, especially, you know, how it's covered as a beat, but also, you know, how journalists need to be thinking about their own mental health. But to start off with, tell me about, a bit about yourself. How did you get interested in journalism? You know, how did you get interested in mental health? That's that's actually a bit of a long story. That's okay. We got all the time in the world. So growing up, I loved reading. I was always, you know, head in a book, very introverted. And then I ended up going through some family issues of my of my own and was adopted from Denver, Colorado to Las Vegas. And I had a really hard time adjusting to that change. I was 11 years old. You know, I, I had known my biological family. And I was just really struggling. So just with my own mental health and with all that, my own trauma from my childhood. So I ended up just starting to write through middle school and journal to help me kind of cope with my emotions and my own like mental health. And then in eighth grade, the, the small kind of Catholic middle school that I was in started doing a newsletter that I helped out with my English teacher. And I really ended up loving it. And I found out that a lot of, you know, writers were journalists first. They started off working in newspapers. So I went to a school in Las Vegas called Las Vegas Academy. They had a broadcast track there and an international language program that I became a part of. And I just really kind of fell in love with journalism very young and stuck to it from like 14 all the way, all the way to now. That's a long story, but it, it just kind of progressively grew as I grew. Okay. Well, how'd you end up at Buffalo News One? I ended up here through Report for America, which is a national service program to help fill in the gaps from local news dying. So they had started out very small with about five reporters the first year and my year was the third year and we had 60 reporters across the country. So Spectrum News applied for a fellow or a core member for Report for America and I ended up being very interested in covering mental health. So 
It was a perfect match. So tell me about the, the mental health beat. What's the focus? Of, I mean, obviously it's, uh, it's mental health, but did you have training in that? What skills did, did you have to learn that may be different than what other journalists may be using? I kind of always covered trauma in some form. Before I, I worked at Spectrum News, I worked at a paper in Las Vegas covering the foster care system, underage trafficking, underage sex trafficking, and then later the October 1st mass shooting. So I had always covered without really trying to. I ended up covering a lot of trauma and traumatic events. And then that kind of segued into learning how to interview people who have gone through traumatic events, who have, you know, been victims of sexual assault or had a really hard time with the details of recalling a certain situation. And from there, I had to, you know, not only learn how to interview people who have experienced trauma, but also how to deal with that aspect of, of learning to take on someone's trauma that's not my own, which isn't a skill set a lot of students or journalists learn. I, I went to J school. I took all the classes, you know, talking about trauma reporting and the impact that that has on you wasn't really mentioned outside of, you know, the DART center. So it was a learn as I go, but I have been very fortunate because there's a lot more trainings now that I take part in. I was a opiate and addiction fellow for the National Press Foundation this year that really helped me understand how to report on addiction and substance use. So it's, it's a work in progress. You know, at various times I've interviewed people who had been going through trauma or other people who had mental health issues. And, you know, sometimes when you cover a story like that, you, you know, part of being a journalist is you're well-developed sense of empathy you know you have to sort of empathize with a, a source or somebody who may be a victim of a crime or something but then also you have to sort of keep that distance is that something that that you've observed is a difficult thing to do sometimes yes i mean it's definitely been a challenge for me to deal with you know being an empathetic listener and really making sure you have that clear boundary especially if you're dealing with people who don't have a lot of experience talking to journalists or reporters. You have to really make sure consistently you say, like, I'm here to listen to your story and help, you know, tell your story, but I am a journalist. I can't, I can't go beyond these certain, you know, boundaries. And that can be challenging, of course, but I think within that frame, I've always tried to make sure you know, the person I'm interviewing knows that if they want to back out at any time during the process, that's okay with me. I don't, I'm not very pushy when it comes to interviews on my beat, specifically mental health, because, you know, I don't want to re-traumatize someone from telling their story and then seeing it on air and having their family see it. If someone's not ready for that, then I, I'm not going to pressure them for that. It can be tricky because sometimes your, you know, your instinct is to continue asking questions, but you almost have to sort of stop yourself 
and you know recognize that you don't want to you don't want to prey on somebody you know on their goodwill you want to be able to tell their story and understand their perspective i mean that's been some of the experience that i've had you know recently i just wrapped up a project or i'm wrapping up a project having to do with uh, homeless people and some of the people that i have have interviewed had mental health issues or just i mean even just the day-to-day of being a you know living as a homeless person that you could sense that there there was an appreciation an implied appreciation that there was somebody there who was asking them questions and actually listening to them and so for me that was kind of a you know a situation when i felt i had to have a lot of responsibility when i was in those conversations to not you know try to take advantage of it or or to you know misrepresent myself that they understood that I was you know that it, I was there to gather some information to help them tell their stories and that sometimes can be kind of tricky yeah it, it definitely it can be very challenging to remind people of of your role and and its limitations yeah for sure and then the other side of it that is you know you go home and you and you think you know you want to help somebody but you know there's only so much that you can do and so you know, that's part of the, you know, thing where the, the journalist needs to, to figure out where their space is and their boundaries are. So were you on the beat in New York before the pandemic? Yes. So I had about a about nine months reporting before the pandemic. I had done a lot of specials, you know, or, or sweeps where there were a series dedicated to a certain topic, whether that was stigma around mental health or the impacts of sexual assault on children in light of the. Was this the uh, archdiocese issue? issue Yeah, there was was that New York bill, the child's victim act. That's the name of it. It allowed people who, you know, were victims of sexual assault by not just the priests, but by anyone. It extended the uh, statutes of limitation so that they could report and pursue justice that way. I did a series on the trauma of reporting sexual assault as a child, of not being believed, of adverse childhood experiences. So I I did a lot of series before the pandemic started on those topics, very like deep dive stories. And then when the pandemic hit, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a whole studio or whole team to help me produce those stories, which was definitely a challenge because you started off, you know, for the first nine months of your job doing something one way, and then you have to pivot completely to figure out how to cover the beat in a, in a different way, in your own way. Well, well, let's talk a little bit before we get into the types of stories you're doing. Let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of that. How did you adapt? What was it that you needed to do? Obviously, we should point out Spectrum News One. That's a it's a website, but it's a it's, there's a video element to it as well. Reproducing video, right? Yeah. So it's it's a TV station and it's a website. So it is it's a bit of a challenge. You know, I think the entire station had to switch from being in a newsroom where it was very collaborative, where you could go to someone's desk and say, hey, I need a photographer at noon for this interview, to being a one-room kind of, a one-woman media production company. And that was in my studio apartment, which was really old. It had stone walls, so it wasn't great for, like, recording audio. 
you know, we had to figure out how to have video for on air that went over, you know, Zoom videos because those were pretty dull. And (laughs) it's not fun to be in a Zoom interview and people don't want to see that on TV. So you're, you find yourself producing videos for broadcast and online out of your, your studio apartment. (laughs) Yeah. For most of the pandemic, that was what was happening. I, I recently moved to a bigger space. We're working remote now for, you know, the foreseeable future. So we're not going back into the newsroom, but it was definitely incredibly you know, rough because I, I was recording audio under like a makeshift blanket fort under my kitchen table, which also served as my desk, you know, trying to get sources, audio clean, which was very challenging, especially at the start of the pandemic, figuring out how to do compelling video. All of that was a bit of a challenge. Now we've slowly kind of figured out how to do things on our own. I'm still doing Zoom interviews, but I actually shoot a lot of my video on my iPhone and then edit through Luma Fusion on an iPad. And it's amazing how technology has adapted. And that's made, I think, producing video a little bit easier throughout this process. Yeah, it definitely has made it made a change. And you could see lots of newsrooms making that shift and sort of leaning on some of the digital skills that they may have picked up over the years where they never had to necessarily use on a day-to-day basis. So we know how the pandemic affected your your reporting ability and, and how you're producing your content. How did it shift your beat? I mean, not that there weren't any mental health issues at all having to go, go with the pandemic, people being locked in their houses for 24 hours a day, that there were no you know, no issues that anybody was experiencing or general fear of, of dying for some, some disease that you couldn't see. So how did your beat change? I mean, it changed in the fact that everything became much more immediate. The stories that I would have a little bit more time to kind of report on now became increasingly important. You know, one of the stories I did, honestly, just two or three weeks before the pandemic was the role of church leaders in historically black churches in addressing mental health stigma through health programs and working with UB, University at Buffalo here, and just the historic health disparities between Buffalo's black and white community. One of the things that my source said to me was, these health problems have always existed. And the reason that they haven't really been addressed is because the boat is still floating. If you look at America, the boat is still floating. We're doing great. So nobody's really concerned about the people on the back of the boat who aren't doing well now because everything's fine. And then two weeks later, COVID happened and you immediately saw the boat start to sink. You saw it when the first kind of data came out about who was dying at higher rates. You saw it, you know, just with, I think it was three weeks after we had three different police departments in different counties reporting an increase in overdoses. So it was very quick when the stories started coming. It was, you know, three weeks is not a lot of time from from when an event happens to 
to kind of get these results, but it's shown me the immediacy of how important covering things were on a timely basis. You know, I didn't have the time to do full series because by the time I got those series out, you know, the information was already changing. So that changed a lot as far as my reporting went. I had to, you know, do a lot of quicker stories just so people could have that information in hand. At the start of the pandemic, a lot of it was just prevention and resources. I think everyone was a little optimistic and hoping that, you know, it wouldn't last past the summer. Oh, we <laughs> were so naive. <laughs> so, so naive. You know, so a lot of it was if you're struggling for mental health, you know, these are the nonprofits that are doing free telehealth services for first responders. This is how you can get, you know, support for your children who might be struggling with adapting from working, from studying from home. And then it really became more of a, this doesn't seem like it's ending. And in fact, a lot of things compiled on it. There was a report early on about the deaths of despair and pro the projection of deaths of despair because of this, which, you know, those are deaths of suicide, overdose, other issues in addition to those that are related to economic depression. And it essentially said the longer the COVID pandemic goes on, the higher those numbers are going to be. You know, how did you identify the stories that you needed to tell or that you wanted to tell? It's so strange talking about how I did it. <laughs> but apparently you did. I did it. I actually had a giant chalkboard, like a wallpaper chalkboard in my apartment. And through probably way too much espresso, I mapped out all of the different populations in Buffalo that should be covered, all the different demographics, you know, whether that was Buffalo's Black community, the LGBTQ community, moms. In addition to mapping all of that out, I mapped out all the nonprofits and what they have been doing, nonprofits and providers and what they were doing throughout the pandemic. And it was almost like drawing a line to the demographics, to the nonprofits. And then I would circle back to them, the nonprofits, and say, what are people calling you into with the biggest challenges? Like, what are you seeing the most need for? And then I would kind of tackle those stories first. That's pretty neat. Is, it, is that a strategy you've employed before? Yeah, I'm kind of neurotic when it comes to like long form investigative stories. I get really into, you know, research and just the reporting to the point where it's always very helpful to have an editor say, okay, that's enough. You don't need to you don't need 40 sources for this one story, but it's always been something I used. I think the other example before when I worked in print would be this magazine spread on children aging out of foster care in Las Vegas and the lack of social safety nets there. And that was a massive project, but my desk was covered in sticky notes to the point where everyone made fun of me. They were like, oh, look at your sticky notes. It's very embarrassing, but I think that helps me a lot. I'm a visual kind of reporter, so I have to see, you know, the names and where the, the facts go with it versus just, you know, sitting at a computer and typing it all out. And it's, it's neat that you, you recognize the fact that you're visually attuned 
And so that's the way you kind of plan things out. You're kind of like a, like a movie psycho with their, um, <laughs> with their, like all the newspaper clippings and red tape and string tying everything together on your wall, but in a positive way. But beyond that, <laughs> let me ask you this. What did you see as some of the, um, your successes in your reporting? What did you do that you thought turned out really well? I think the thing that I did very well was the follow-ups. I know that's not like a, you know. A super sexy thing. It's, you know. It's, it, yeah, it's not super sexy. No, no journalist wants to do the follow-ups. But I've always felt like follow-ups are the most underrated part of a journalist's job. Because if you don't do the follow-ups, that big flashy story kind of just is thrown out there. But in a couple of weeks, people forget about it. So I've been most proud of the follow-ups. I've consistently tried to cover the opioid epidemic and its increase in Buffalo and the resources that exist and how policies have changed. I've been very proud about that. I've been proud about the withholding of funds from New York State to providers by 20%, even when more people are seeking out those providers for mental health and continuously following up on that story. It's not a sexy story by any means, but you know, if you have this huge mental health crisis, but these providers have 20% less funds to deal with it, that's a problem that needs to be consistently followed up on. And that's part of my job as a journalist. And that's a, that's a story that is hugely impactful that's going to affect a lot of people. It's amazing how through, you know, so many different types of stories into a different light, certainly, you know, you touched on disparity in, in healthcare, but, you know, obviously um, part of that is the, the ongoing uh, discussion in our country about race and, you know, the disparity at various different income levels I mean, that was in stark display during the pandemic. And then, you know, how the how how are politicians and how the government responds to things uh, where they did well and where they where they fell short. Um, and unfortunately, it was a thing that when they fall short, sometimes people die. Um, so, you know, I alluded to at the very beginning that, you know, I reached out to Amber Hill and said, you know, this one, because you used to work at Spectrum as well. And it was because there was a tweet that you put out and I forget what, it, you know, I, I, I made an attempt to try to find the tweet and I should have like just copied and pasted it in, in a, in a document and then, and had it so that I could read it. But I, I seem to remember it had to do with, you know, you encouraging people to take care, uh, to, um, you know, find a moment, uh, for self care. And, and so let's, let's talk a little bit about, about journalists. The pandemic was a really challenging time for journalists. I think it was a, you know, it it was a story that demanded a lot of attention and, you know, created a lot of challenges. I mean, you talked about how you had to sort of, re, you know, completely change the way you uh, produced your, your, your pieces. Um, what do you think are, are some of the things that the journalists sometimes forget about when it comes to their own mental health that, that maybe they should spend a little more time on? Oh, God. Um, well, I, I think the first thing that we forget is that journalism is a trauma-facing job. As a journalist, 
you're, you know, going to have to face trauma at some point, whether that's covering an accident or a mass shooting or a global pandemic or a, a rape victim. You're going to have to face someone's trauma at some point. And I think the industry has definitely failed people to do to figure out how to deal with this grief and pain that's not your own. I've struggled a lot with figuring out how, you know, people who are entrusting me with these stories, what do I do when these stories are done? And I'm just left, you know, with that person's pain. Um, And I think that's a very challenging thing. That's, you know, every individual has to figure out how to cope with that. But I think it's something we should prepare young journalists for. And then the second thing is the journalism industry is a, is an industry that you go into because you're passionate about your job, but it's also one that doesn't pay very well. There's constant layoffs. Um, It's a very, very, you know, tough industry to be in both financially and emotionally. And it's one where, you know, a lot of the kind of bonding that you used to have would be by going out after, you know, spending 10, 12 hours in the newsroom to a bar. And that would be how you blow off steam. You know, it was very common to skip lunches and not eat breakfast or just have, you know, a pot of coffee for breakfast. And that's not a very healthy way to um, live life. It's not a sustainable way to report. Um, So I, I think when I sent out that tweet and I'm notorious for sending out sassy tweets about mental health and journalism. (laughs) (laughs) I just heard from so many people who were burnt out and just very talented reporters, both at the national and local level, who are so exhausted from covering this, you know, pandemic and living through this pandemic that in and of itself is a trauma. Um, and then you're constantly covering the pandemic. A lot of them quit. A lot of them left this industry and, you know, it took them months to find themselves, you know, back to the baseline. And I hoped that with that treat or those constant reminders that people would start to look at this industry and say, you know, we've praised people for working these 12 hour days not eating and that's not really something worth praising someone for right you should go and you should have breakfast you should have a life outside of your job in fact some of my best stories and projects came because i had friends outside of this industry say hey you should do a story about you know this drag queen in buffalo who does mental health for the lgbtq community you know those are stories that you get when you go out into the community and you live life. And, you know, you don't do your best work when you're exhausted, when you don't drink water, when you're dehydrated, when you haven't slept. In fact, you know, plenty of studies have shown that that makes your cognitive function, you know, less than, and it's detrimental to your ability to write a great sentence, to edit video well, you make stupid mistakes, So I think it's just costly on a lot of fronts to not take care of your mental health. But I think there's a lot that both individual journalists can do and the industry can do to really address that. 
at the very least is sort of address this perception that, you know, tough it up. You're a journalist, you know, your job is to go, you're following the, the first responders to the disaster site. You're the person who's going to be asking the tough questions. You're going to come back and you're compartmentalize that and put it out there and, you know, separate yourself emotionally from the things you see and witness. But there's always a toll eventually. I've read a few stories. There's sort of, there are people who are addressing this issue. And, and then there's a, for anyone who's listening to this, there's a Facebook group concerning journalists who cover trauma. It's a really great group to go to. And it's, you know, I am, I don't think I'm breaking the, the vow of, of silence on that, that it is a, you have to join the group and it's a closed group and you can't share, you know, information that you find in there you know, or things that people say, but it's a great place to go to find resources and also to find other people who are in the same situation that you may be in or having the same experiences. I definitely think now more than ever, people have been really recognizing that this is an industry challenge, which I think is great. It wasn't something talked about early on in my career. I remember covering the October 1st mass shooting. And, you know, it was mentioned that there were resources if you were struggling or, you know, you could, you could talk to someone, but that was for a couple of weeks and nobody really took advantage of it because there is this culture in journalism where, you know, if you can't handle the worst of the worst that this world has, then you're weak. So I didn't take advantage of it. And I hadn't realized, you know, the impact that covering that and interviewing survivors had on on my mental health until six months later I was having nocturnal panic attacks and just having a really hard time sleeping more than a couple hours at a night and being constantly afraid because during that night you know I just got a text from my editor that hey it's an all hands on deck thing and not a call nothing and you know I had a hard time sleeping after that because it was like well, you know, when is the next all hands on deck thing going to happen? And is it going to be through a text message that I find out? I've talked on the podcast before. I've, I've experienced it. You know, I, I have an anxiety disorder, which is really challenging when you're a, a journalist and you have regular deadlines to meet. You know, I get deadline anxiety. I, there are other situations that I find myself in that I dread. They're all triggers to the anxiety. And so it's, it's a matter of, you know, trying to recognize those and then, you know, figuring out strategies of how to deal with them. But, you know, at the bottom line, and this is what we're talking about, it's this, you know, recognizing that we're, you know, we're feeling human beings and this idea that, you know, we can just dispassionately look at something and witness something and not register that some way as a human being is, is ludicrous that, you know, part of our job is to go and get the facts and to cover things and to take things away from it and then bring them back and tell that. I mean, that's our job is to go witness these things and then bring them back so that other people don't have to see them. Again, that takes a toll. And how to figure out how to do that. You said people, you know, many people quit. Can't blame them because the this is a terror. This is a uh, the, this is a career where it's all challenges and the rewards are nowhere meet the challenges that the many challenges you have to face often. And so 
I don't know. I'm doing a podcast for for almost nine years about journalism. I must must care about this industry to some bit. One of the things you said maybe maybe thinking about is is I go into some of these interviews and and asking difficult questions of people who've been through things and just sometimes feeling like a carpetbagger that I'm just there to take whatever you know suffering or issue or whatever the that the sources are dealing with and then I'm just taking that and going away with it. I'm not necessarily leaving anything and supposedly the rationale is the the leaving is my reporting the thing i bring back so that other people can can read and maybe experiencing that thing so you know as we kind of wrap this up you know we're out of the pandemic i mean i think we're still feeling the um the stress of it as people are going back to work i mean we're in that weird transitional phase are you, you know, identifying any stories from that perspective at this point? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think last year was an incredibly traumatic year for this nation. We had the pandemic, we had, you know, George Floyd's death and, and just November twenty election and the political divide. There was so much trauma and stress. So many people lost their livelihoods. It really showed how fragile everything in America is. And even as we start to kind of slowly go back to normal, the entire year hasn't been fully processed by most people, especially the people who were hit the hardest by everything that happened. I was talking to this NYU professor about how children and high school students are going to be, you know, coping with having almost two years of their life being in this remote kind of learning situation. You know, what's the impact that that's going to have on them? And he said something that I think I'm hoping to incorporate in my, my work from here on out, that it's going to impact different people differently based on how they struggled that last year. You know, did they have access to Wi-Fi? Did they have access to healthcare? Was it a single mother who lost her job and is now not able to get another job and can't afford childcare? Those things are going to be the story that I think a lot of journalists need to follow up on. There's so many things that happened. And I think all of us were just kind of trying to get that information out. That now is the time to slow down our reporting and really figure out what are the long-term impacts that this is going to have on people and who's, you know, are we really doing what we need to for the people who were hurt the most? You know, one thing that, that kind of switched my attitude a few months ago, you know, when we were still in the pandemic and things were more and more people were beginning to take the vaccine was because in the early days of the pandemic, everything that we talked about was, you know, well, when things return to normal, I don't know who said it, but I heard them say, well, things aren't going to return to normal. Things are going to be different. We're different because we've gone through this. And so we don't know what normal will be in, you know, 2021, 2022 and going forward, because it's not just, you know, one family dealing with a, a crisis or, or a death. It's it's an entire society that has had to deal with this. 
and you know we're going to be seeing the effects of this for a long time probably for decades in many ways and don't want to wrap this up with everything being such a downer but not that i necessarily think it's a downer i think it's it's very serious what we're talking about here but i think it's also very positive in the sense that we're recognizing you know there are certain issues and things that we need to cover as part of our job to make things better what do you do personally for self-care that you're willing to share (laughs) (laughs) it took me a really long time to figure out how to do self-care right because I think there's a lot of stories like oh you just need a bath or you know (laughs) go for a walk light some candles light some candles have a cup of tea and not that that's not relaxing and fun but I think for me self-care also means looking at the things that you need to do that you might not want to do, but are beneficial for you. So for me, I very easily forget to eat food. Like if I'm working on a story, <laughs> I will skip breakfast and lunch and be like, and then I'll be seven and I'll be like, oh, I, I should eat. Or I'll drink coffee from, you know, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And for me, I realized that that was detrimental to my physical and emotional health. So making sure that I, on Sundays, make meals and have them ready to go so that when I set an alarm for noon, I have to force myself to take a lunch break and step away and not check my phone. Like I, for, for that one hour lunch break, if the world burns, it burns, but I don't want to know about it, which I think is really hard for journalists because you're yeah. like, I want to be on my phone. I want to you know, be the first person to break this story. And that's not sustainable. It wasn't sustainable <laughs> for me. And then I've been fortunate because I've had editors where I was able to say, hey, you know, I covered this story and it was really rough and I just need a day or two off. And they would give me that time off. As you know, I cover a lot of <laughs> trauma and sometimes doing, sto- you know, stories about trauma day after day, it gets you down. You feel like all you do is kind of deliver bad news to the world and it can distort your view. Taking a couple of days off and for me, especially during the pandemic, when there is summers in Buffalo, they're beautiful. <laughs> um, so I would go and I just go for walks with my dog and just remember that there is so much out there that is worth appreciating and admiring and taking in. And that makes life worthwhile, which is, I think, a very easy thing to forget when you're in journalism because so much of it is doom and gloom. Camilla, this was fascinating and a fun conversation. Thank you for coming on. It's all journalism. We'll share a link to some of your stories. I encourage people to check them out. And I hope the year continues to get better for you. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe.
Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.